0: Chapter 33 of Adam Bede by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Denham. More links. The barley was all carried at last, and the harvest suppers went by without waiting for the dismal black crop of beans. The apples and nuts were gathered and stored. The scent of whey departed from the farmhouses, and the scent of brewing came in its stead. The woods behind the chase, and all the hedgerow-trees, took on a solemn splendour under the dark, low-hanging skies. Michaelmas was come, with its fragrant basketfuls of purple damsons, and its paler purple daisies, and its lads and lasses leaving or seeking service and winding along between the yellow hedges with their bundles under their arms. But, though Michaelmas was come, Mr. Thurl, that desirable tenant, did not come to the chase farm, and the old squire, after all, had been obliged to put in a new bailiff. It was known throughout the two parishes that the squire's plan had been frustrated because the poysers had refused to be put upon— and mrs poyser's outbreak was discussed in all the farmhouses with a zest which was only heightened by frequent repetition the news that boney was come back from egypt was comparatively insipid and the repulse of the french in italy was nothing to mrs poyser's repulse of the old squire mr irwine had heard a version of it in every parishioner's house with the one exception of the chase but since he had always, with marvellous skill, avoided any quarrel with Mr. Donnithorne, he could not allow himself the pleasure of laughing at the old gentleman's discomfiture with any one besides his mother, who declared that if she were rich she would like to allow Mrs. Poyser a pension for life, and wanted to invite her to the parsonage that she might hear an account of the scene from Mrs. Poyser's own lips.' no no mother said mr Irwine, it was a little bit of irregular justice on mrs poyser's part but a magistrate like me must not countenance irregular justice there must be no report spread that i have taken notice of the quarrel else i shall lose the little good influence i have over the old man well i like that woman even better than her cream cheeses Said Mrs. Irwine. She has the spirit of three men with that pale face of hers, and she says such sharp things too. Sharp? Yes, her tongue is like a new set razor. She's quite original in her talk too, one of those untaught wits that help to stock a country with proverbs. I told you that capital thing I heard her say about Craig that he was like a cock who thought the sun had risen to hear him crow. Now that's an Aesop's fable in a sentence. "'But it will be a bad business if the old gentleman turns them out of the farm next Michaelmas, eh?' said Mrs. Irwine. "'Oh, that must not be! And Poyser is such a good tenant that Donnithorn is likely to think twice, and digest his spleen rather than turn them out.' "'But if he should give them notice at Lady Day, Arthur and I must move heaven and earth to mollify him. Such old parishioners as they are must not go.' "'Ah, there's no knowing what may happen before Lady Day,' said Mrs. Irwine. "'It struck me on Arthur's birthday that the old man was a little shaken. He's eighty-three, you know. It's really an unconscionable age.' "'It's only women who have a right to live as long as that.' "'When they've got old bachelor sons who would be forlorn without them,' said Mr. Irwine, laughing and kissing his mother's hand. Mrs. Poyser too, met her husband's occasional forebodings of a notice to quit, with, "'There's no knowing what may happen before Lady Day.' one of those undeniable general propositions which are usually intended to convey a particular meaning very far from undeniable. But it is really too hard upon human nature that it should be held a criminal offence to imagine the death even of the king when he is turned eighty-three. It is not to be believed that any but the dullest Britons can be good subjects under that hard condition. Apart from this foreboding, things went on much as usual in the Poyser household. Mrs. Poyser thought she noticed a surprising improvement in Hetty. To be sure, the girl got closer-tempered, and sometimes she seemed as if there'd be no drawing a word from her with cart-ropes. But she thought much less about her dress, and went after the work quite eagerly, without any telling. And it was wonderful how she never wanted to go out now. Indeed, she could hardly be persuaded to go. And she bore her aunt's putting a stop to her weekly lesson in fine work at the chase without the least grumbling or pouting. It must be, after all, that she had set her heart on Adam at last and her sudden freak of wanting to be a lady's maid must have been caused by some little pique or misunderstanding between them which had passed by for whenever adam came to the hall farm hetty seemed to be in better spirits and to talk more than at other times though she was almost sullen when mr craig or any other admirer happened to pay a visit there Adam himself watched her at first with trembling anxiety, which gave way to surprise and delicious hope. Five days after delivering Arthur's letter, he had ventured to go to the Hall Farm again, not without dread lest the sight of him might be painful to her. She was not in the house-place when he entered, and he sat talking to Mr. and Mrs. Poyser for a few minutes with a heavy fear on his heart, that they might presently tell him Hetty was ill. But by and by there came a light step that he knew, and when Mrs. poyser said, "'Come, Hetty, where have you been?' Adam was obliged to turn round, though he was afraid to see the changed look there must be in her face. He almost started when he saw her smiling, as if she were pleased to see him. Looking the same as ever at a first glance, only that she had her cap on, which he had never seen her in before when he came of an evening. Still, when he looked at her again and again as she moved about or sat at her work, there was a change. The cheeks were as pink as ever, and she smiled as much as she had ever done of late, but there was something different in her eyes, in the expression of her face, in all her movements." Adam thought. Something harder, older, less childlike. "'Poor thing,' he said to himself. "'That's all as likely. It's because she's had her first heartache. But she's got a spirit to bear up under it. Thank God for that.' As the weeks went by, and he saw her always looking pleased to see him, turning up her lovely face towards him as if she meant him to understand that she was glad for him to come, and going about her work in the same equable way, making no sign of sorrow, he began to believe that her feeling towards Arthur must have been much slighter than he had imagined in his first indignation and alarm, and that she had been able to think of her girlish fancy that Arthur was in love with her, and would marry her, as a folly of which she was timely cured. And it perhaps was, as he had sometimes in his more cheerful moments hoped it would be, her heart was really turning with all the more warmth towards the man she knew to have a serious love for her. Possibly you think that Adam was not at all sagacious in his interpretations— and that it was altogether extremely unbecoming in a sensible man to behave as he did, falling in love with a girl who really had nothing more than her beauty to recommend her, attributing imaginary virtues to her, and even condescending to cleave to her after she had fallen in love with another man, waiting for her kind looks as a patient, trembling dog waits for his master's eye to be turned upon him. But in so complex a thing as human nature we must consider, it is hard to find rules without exceptions. Of course, I know that, as a rule, sensible men fall in love with the most sensible women of their acquaintance, see through all the pretty deceits of coquettish beauty, never imagine themselves loved when they are not loved, cease loving on all proper occasions, and marry the woman most fitted for them in every respect. Indeed, so as to compel the approbation of all the maiden ladies in their neighbourhood. But even to this rule an exception will occur now and then in the lapse of centuries, and my friend Adam was one. For my own part, however, I respect him none the less. Nay, I think the deep love he had for that sweet, rounded, blossom-like, dark-eyed Hetty, of whose inward self he was really very ignorant, came out of the very strength of his nature, and not out of any inconsistent weakness. Is it any weakness, pray, to be wrought on by exquisite music, to feel its wondrous harmonies searching the subtlest windings of your soul, the delicate fibres of life where no memory can penetrate, and binding together your whole being, past and present? In one unspeakable vibration, melting you in one moment with all the tenderness, all the love that has been scattered through the toilsome years, concentrating in one emotion of heroic courage or resignation all the hard-learned lessons of self-renouncing sympathy, blending your present joy with past sorrow, and your present sorrow with all your past joy. If not, then neither is it a weakness to be so wrought upon by the exquisite curves of a woman's cheek and neck and arms, by the liquid depths of her beseeching eyes, or the sweet, childish pout of her lips. For the beauty of a lovely woman is like music. What can one say more? beauty has an expression beyond and far above the one woman's soul that it clothes as the words of genius have a wider meaning than the thought that prompted them it is more than a woman's love that moves us in a woman's eyes it seems to be a far-off mighty love that has come near to us and made speech for itself there the rounded neck the dimpled arm move us by something more than their prettiness, by their close kinship with all we have known of tenderness and peace. The noblest nature sees the most of this impersonal expression in beauty. It is needless to say that there are gentlemen with whiskers, dyed and undyed, who see none of it whatever. And for this reason— the noblest nature is often the most blinded to the character of the one woman's soul that the beauty clothes. Whence I fear the tragedy of human life is likely to continue for a long time to come, in spite of mental philosophers who are ready with the best receipts for avoiding all mistakes of the kind. Our good Adam— had no fine words into which he could put his feeling for hetty, he could not disguise mystery in this way with the appearance of knowledge. He called his love, frankly, a mystery, as you have heard him. He only knew that the sight and memory of her moved him deeply, touching the spring of all love and tenderness, all faith and courage within him how could he imagine narrowness, selfishness, hardness in her? He created the mind he believed in out of his own, which was large, unselfish, tender. The hopes he felt about Hetty softened a little his feeling towards Arthur. Surely his attentions to Hetty must have been of a slight kind." They were altogether wrong, and such as no man in Arthur's position ought to have allowed himself, but they must have had an air of playfulness about them, which had probably blinded him to their danger, and had prevented them from laying any strong hold on Hetty's heart. As the new promise of happiness rose for Adam, his indignation and jealousy began to die out. Hetty was not made unhappy he almost believed that she liked him best, and the thought sometimes crossed his mind that the friendship which had once seemed dead forever might revive in the days to come, and he would not have to say good-bye to the grand old woods, but would like them better because they were Arthur's. For this new promise of happiness, following so quickly on the shock of pain, had an intoxicating effect on the sober Adam— who had all his life been used to much hardship and moderate hope was he really going to have an easy lot after all it seemed so for at the beginning of november jonathan burge finding it impossible to replace adam had at last made up his mind to offer him a share in the business without further condition than that he should continue to give his energies to it and renounce all thought of having a separate business of his own. Son-in-law or no son-in-law, Adam had made himself too necessary to be parted with, and his head-work was so much more important to Burge than his skill in handicraft, that his having the management of the woods made little difference in the value of his services and as to the bargains about the squire's timber it would be easy to call in a third person adam saw here an opening into a broadening path of prosperous work such as he had thought of with ambitious longing ever since he was a lad he might come to build a bridge or a town-hall, or a factory, for he had always said to himself that Jonathan Burge's building business was like an acorn which might be the mother of a great tree. So he gave his hand to Burge on that bargain, and went home with his mind full of happy visions, in which—my refined reader will perhaps be shocked when I say it—the image of Hetty hovered and smiled over plans for seasoning timber at a trifling expense calculations as to the cheapening of bricks per thousand by water-carriage and a favourite scheme for the strengthening of roofs and walls with a peculiar form of iron girder what then adam's enthusiasm lay in these things and our love is inwrought in our enthusiasm as electricity is inwrought in the air Exalting its power by a subtle presence. Adam would be able to take a separate house now and provide for his mother in the old one. His prospects would justify his marrying very soon. And if Dinah consented to have Seth, their mother would perhaps be more contented to live apart from Adam. But he told himself that he would not be hasty. He would not try. Hetty's feeling for him, until it had had time to grow strong and firm. However, to-morrow, after church, he would go to the Hall Farm and tell them the news. Mr. Poyser, he knew, would like it better than a five-pound note, and he should see if Hetty's eyes brightened at it. The months would be short with all he had to fill his mind, and this foolish eagerness which had come over him of late, must not hurry him into any premature words. Yet when he got home and told his mother the good news, and ate his supper, while she sat by, almost crying for joy, and wanting him to eat twice as much as usual because of this good luck, he could not help preparing her gently for the coming change by talking of the old house being too small for them all to go on living in it always. End of chapter thirty three recording by Tom Denham.